Let us begin with prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that we can gather together in thy name, to acknowledge that indeed thou hast been most gracious unto us, that thou hast beset us before and behind with thy mercies and blessings. Teach us, our fathers, in all things to be grateful, to know that thou art very near and thou wilt never leave us nor forsake us. Strengthen us in faith, Encourage us in hope. Make us bold in battle unto the end that in Jesus Christ we may conquer. In his name we pray. Amen. We begin today our series of studies in the book of Daniel with the first chapter of Daniel. Our subject is the offense of Daniel. Daniel 1, the offense of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem, and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and unto Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love of the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then should he make me endanger my head to the king. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to drink, to eat, and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children, that eat of the portion of the king's meat, and as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter, and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh 
than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them choice. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all the realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. Our subject today is the offense of Daniel, specifically of the book of Daniel. The offense of Daniel, of course, is the offense of the whole of the Bible. From beginning to end, men find in the Bible something offensive to them, because in their unbelief and in their modernism, they hate God. But certain portions of the Bible in particular draw this concentrated hatred and venom. And chief among these is the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel declares itself to have been written by Daniel, beginning approximately in 606 to 607 B.C. Going on, to his old age. According to virtually every seminary in the United States, with only one or two exceptions, irrespective of the church, either openly or implicitly, it is taught that the book of Daniel, instead of having been written in the 6th century B.C., was written in the 2nd century B.C., a difference of four centuries, that it was not written by Daniel, that it did not deal with historical happenings, that it was forgery and myth. This is the standard line. At every point it is attacked. There was no Daniel, no such events took place, from beginning to end, it is not granted one shred of truth. And this is done on philosophical grounds. The evidence is clearly against these men. Some years ago, a very important study was published by a major scholar in the United States at one of our major universities, a man who does not purport to have any church affiliation. In this study, he demonstrated very clearly, without any reference, of course, to the book of Daniel, but nonetheless, he demonstrated that the book of Daniel had an amazing, precise, and extensive knowledge of Babylon, of the inner workings of the royal house, 
of things that disappeared from history when Babylon fell and were unknown to the conquerors of Babylon and subsequent historians and unknown until recent excavations confirmed the accuracy of Daniel. Now this study was published in the 20s. It represented the work of research of some 20 years prior to that. Has it changed the picture in the minds of these unbelievers, these modernists? Not at all. They do not allow their minds to be confused with facts. As a result, they continue to assert that the book of Daniel is a myth, it is of Maccabean origin, and so on. The offense of Daniel is its context. Because Daniel asserts certain things which, if the book is what it declares itself to be, make impossible all modernism and unbelief. Let us analyze briefly these central points of offense in Daniel. First, the God of all scripture is very clearly and unmistakably the God of the book of Daniel. But so very openly what he is that there is no evading him. The name of God is, according to scripture, Jehovah. This is a transliteration of the Hebrew name which no one knows for sure. The meaning of it is clearly known. Moses, when he faced God in the wilderness, asked God to name himself. Now, name in antiquity was a definition. So what Moses asked of God was, define yourself, God. And God refused, saying, I am that I am. I am he who is the self-existent one. Now the significance of the name of God is that God is not definable because God is the definer. All things are defined by God. There is nothing above God that can define God. He is the principle by whom all things are not only created, but are defined and understood. Now Socrates, when he spoke about God, spoke about the epitome of the good, the true, and the beautiful. But what were these things? The good was what Socrates said was the good. And what he didn't like was not the good. The true was what Socrates, by his philosophy, determined was true. Everything else he excluded. The beautiful, again, was what Socrates said was beautiful. And God was the epitome of the good and the true and the beautiful and the definition of these things. 
Now, who was God in Socrates' system? Socrates. Because Socrates was the one who defined the good, the true, and the beautiful. Socrates was the only one who understood what the good and the true and the beautiful were. So if you were to know reality, in effect, you had to know the mind of Socrates. And of course, one of the things that Socrates found to be good, true, and beautiful was homosexuality because he was a pervert. And he saw nothing wrong in the public performance of his act. This, for him, constituted the good, the true, and the beautiful. Now, the only possible way we can have God is on his terms. And this is the first offense of the book of Daniel. It gives us God on his terms only, and not in idea, but as the God who acts as the sovereign, the omnipotent, the self-sufficient God who ordains all things and governs all things. And if men are going to be gods, how they can they tolerate the true God? Solomon declared in Proverbs 16:9, A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. And again in Proverbs 20, 24, man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way? Now, this is the teaching of all scripture. But in Daniel, it is not only taught, it is demonstrated emphatically that this is God, the total governor, the total predestinator, the total planner. And when men are going to be their own planners, such a God is very, very objectionable. The second offense of the book of Daniel is its predictive mm -hmm. prophecy. In the book of Daniel, certain things are very clearly predicted. Daniel declares, among a great many other things, that the Babylonian empire of Nebuchadnezzar shall perish. It shall be destroyed by another empire, the Medes and Persians. Their empire, in turn, will be destroyed by a third empire, Alexander the Great. And this third empire will shatter into four parts, which it did, and then be succeeded by a fourth empire, Rome. And that in the days of this fourth empire, God shall bring into being a fifth monarchy, which shall begin insignificantly in and through his Messiah that shall finally cover the entire earth. Now, either this is true or it isn't. Daniel declared it, and all except the last portion have been clearly fulfilled. How are you going to get around this? 
if this is the case, if Daniel declared these things, then Daniel's God is the living God. So how do you get around this? First, you say, there cannot be any predictive prophecy. This is impossible. Therefore, since predictive prophecy is impossible, Daniel could not have been written by Daniel and could not have been written when it was supposedly written. Therefore, it follows, it was not written at that time. Therefore, it follows, Daniel is fraudulent. It is a forgery. It was a book that had to appear by definition after the events because it is impossible to predict anything that precisely and specifically. The argument, you see, rests on a faith and an, on an anti-biblical faith from start to finish. The third offense of Daniel is the element of miracles. Now, there are miracles in many other books of the Bible, but when the Hebrews and the Judeans later looked at the Old Testament and read about the miracles that God performed, smiting Egypt with ten plagues, parting the Red Sea asunder, the miracles in the days of Joshua, and so on, they could say, you see, God did these things for us. But they couldn't say that about the miracles of Daniel. Because the miracles of Daniel are God-centered and they have reference not to what he is doing for any man but to bring his purposes to pass. This is offensive to many people. It was offensive to the Jews. Therefore, they just neglected Daniel. They didn't want any part of it. If God's going to work a miracle, he'd better work it for me or it's an insult to me. That was their attitude. And so they were hostile to the book of Daniel. It has never been a popular book among the Jews, either in the pre-Christian or in the Christian eras. The fourth aspect of Daniel that makes it offensive is its assertion of total providence. Now our Lord, of course, declared emphatically in Matthew 10, 29 and 30 that not a sparrow falls, but your Father in heaven knows it. The very hairs of your head are all numbered so that not a hair falls apart from the government and providence of God. This is total providence. And on this basis, our Lord said, Fear not ye, therefore. God is completely in charge. But, when men are planning to make themselves the planners, to put themselves in charge, 
and to say our total government, our total providence is going to govern the world. They hate the total providence of God and they react to it with hostility. And therefore, the book of Daniel is offensive to them. The book of Daniel begins very simply. Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem. This was not the final destruction of Jerusalem, which came about 20 years later. But the policy of Babylon was, as far as possible, to work cooperatively with peoples to integrate them into this one-world empire they dreamed of. If they resisted, they then broke up each nation and scattered the peoples throughout the empire. The purpose of this was to destroy their old loyalties, their language, so there would be one language, one people. This was done to Judea as it was done to many other peoples. But they also worked to make this move acceptable to people because once they scattered them throughout the empire, they avoided any offense to these people. They had the privileges of Babylonians. Moreover, they usually took the prized youngsters from the royal house and the princely and noble families, as in this case, and took them to the king's palace. These were boys, young boys, 8, 10, 11, 12 years. Picked in terms of their physical appearance and intelligence. They were very well treated. They were given various kinds of aptitude tests. And then they were trained for whatever their aptitude was, administration in one or another branch of the civil service, in various specialties in the sciences, for religion, if they had a bent in that direction, for the Babylonian brain trust, as it were. And then these peoples who had been scattered throughout the empire could feel they were a part of the empire. After all, there were men from their royal family back in the old days who are now powerful rulers within the empire, high up in the bureaucracy. This very, very wise move on the part of the Babylonians helped forestall a lot of the rebelliousness on the parts of the Babylonians. Now Daniel and his three friends, whom we know better through their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were among those 
chose. A difficult life for a boy. Particularly a godly young man. It meant, to course, that the very congeniality of the situation, the luxury with which he was surrounded, the high promotion that was always held out to him, made it very easy for him to forget his faith and his loyalties. And he knew also instinctively that he could forget his people, but they would always be proud of him. They would always look up to him as one of their men in high places, so that he had the advantage both ways. These were four young boys. Daniel felt that it was important to separate himself to a degree without being fanatical or without being offensive from this situation. He had already commended himself to the chief of the units who was in charge of this college. And so he went to him with a request. The meat that was put on the tables before them was dedicated to Ivan. The consumption of it was, in the palace, in those circumstances, a kind of communion service. They felt their youth, they felt their weakness in making any kind of stand and retaining their faith in this situation. So Daniel went and, in behalf of his three friends and himself, asked, Can we be given just pulse and water to eat? false being cereals, grains. They would thereby, during this period when they were in the palace, in the college, avoid the idolatrous communion services. The chief of the eunuchs, anxious to be cooperative with Daniel, said that he was afraid of the consequences if their Health and mental performance should reflect the change of diet. But he agreed when Daniel asked for a 10-day trial to go along with it. At the end of that time, they were clearly far superior. A luxurious diet, obviously, was not as beneficial to the youths as this more Spartan diet was for these four boys. When the time for the examinations came after the three-year course, these four young men proved to be outstanding when they were examined in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar and in part by Nebuchadnezzar. And so they distinguished themselves and were given responsible positions and before too long, rose to high places within the empire. So begins the book of Daniel. Very simply, very modestly, with the story of four boys 
in a very difficult situation far from home. Taken from home as lads and placed in a situation where it would be easy to forget their faith and their training. It continues to be one of the most explosive books imaginable. A very great and a remarkable declaration of the power of God. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank thee that thou art the God of Daniel and our God also. We thank thee that the very hairs of our head are all numbered, that not a sparrow falls but thou, Lord, knowest it. In this confidence we come to thee. Admit ourselves afresh into thy loving hand to rejoice that underneath all the experiences of life are thine everlasting arms. Our Lord and our God, how great thou art, and we praise thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the point is, you see, what he said to Moses. First, I cannot be defined because I define all things. Then, he said, I cannot de be defined, but I reveal myself. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore the God of Isabel and of Dorothy, of everyone who is mine. So God defined himself not in terms of abstract ideas, because ideas come from him. He is the definer. But he, in a sense, he said, I am to be defined by my revelation. I reveal myself to be the God of my people. Yes. I've heard uh, two Jewish people say two different things about God. One of them was apparently an orthodox and had a very heavy thick accent. And he said, uh, you hold that that God, no, he's not the same God as the Christians worship. And this is an answer to, you know, the old, all gods that are like. And the other one, anyway, had completely different, oh, he said, we gave the Christians their God. Now, would you please explain what you see Yes. The uh, Orthodox Jews, of course, have a different conception of God than we do. They are basically uh, Unitarian in their belief. The Bible is Trinitarian from start to finish. But as a result of their hostility to Christianity, Orthodoxy forsook Trinitarianism for Unitarianism. The position of uh, liberal Judaism is basically not Unitarian, but humanistic. So when they say we gave the Christians their God, they mean, of course, the social action people, the uh, humanists in the church, the God is love boys, who identify God with feeling. This is the usual position of these two groups. Yes. 
No, they're not uh, different forms for the name of God, but there are different titles for God. Uh, so that he is called Lord, he is called uh, God, just the word God, or Lord God, uh, and there are a number of other titles for him uh, in terms of his revelations, but only one name. Now, uh, the commandment, of course, declared, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And the Hebrews were so fearful of taking the name of the Lord in vain that they avoided the pronunciation of the name of God. And it was regarded as best not to use it. It would be blasphemous. And as a result, this uh, accounted for the fact that the very pronunciation of the name of God was lost. We're not sure exactly how it is pronounced. Your liberal scholars say it's Yahweh. The uh, older English scholars uh, gave it in English as Jehovah. They very definitely were not trying to reproduce the Hebrew. They were just giving something that approximated it as uh, something that would be feasible in English. So, while this was an exaggerated uh, attitude, basically it was sound in that there was a reverence and a respect and awe and not a casualness with regard to God, which I think has come in too much into the church in recent times in particular. That's why even Jehovah, until about 1900, was not too commonly used in the English-speaking world. The American uh, revision of 1901 used Jehovah throughout. But in the King James, you will find, instead of any attempt to give the name of God, simply Lord in capital letters. And this is substituted for the name of God. Um, I'd like to know, uh, to me, you mentioned Socrates and people of that type. To me, they're dirty, evil people. Uh, now, maybe I'm going overboard, I don't know, but um, are we supposed to admire any of their writings uh, or that they offer that is used today in the different universities and such? No, the writings of Socrates, uh, Plato, because Socrates wrote nothing. Plato's no, works are basically about Socrates. These writings have in our Western tradition, especially in recent years again, been emphasized very heavily in our education and even Christian educators have 
made very heavy use of them. I think this is a serious mistake. Their basic premises are anti-Christian. Their morality is anti-Christian. I feel that we could do better without them. The perspective of Plato and Socrates was total statism, total communism. Their morality was the morality of communism. They did not believe in God. Now, if we are going to learn from them, we might as well go to Karl Marx and get it in a modern version. There isn't any difference from a Christian perspective. But when you talk to people, they say, well, they've offered so much. Well, what have they offered? They cannot be specific. Well, then I'm not wrong in my feelings. No. Plato and Socrates are more extreme in their communism than the Marxists today. Yes. Did the Greeks in that period uh, use any of the books of the Bible, as you might know? None. There was no real influence in Christianity in the Greek culture? No. Although the evidence indicates that uh, before the time of Christ, the biblical writings were known throughout the Roman Empire and as far east as China, they had no influence on the world of Greek thought. One reason I ask is because uh, the later the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, which is basically Christian, sprung from this, and I was wondering where the connection came in. No, the, the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, although it has been heavily in, infected with Neoplatonism, didn't spring out of uh, Greek thought. Well, I mean, it was originally very strongly uh, orthodox in its Christianity in the true sense of that word. Later it became very strongly infected by Neoplatonism and has drifted into a world of stagnation as a result. Yes. Yes. Impossible, because in what true republic do you have a communism of women for the elite planners? In what true republic do you abolish private property? In what true republic do you have the planners going through the people like cattle and saying, uh, you're going to work in the fields, you're going to work in the factories, you're going to work in the weaving uh, mills, and so on down the line. Now, uh, the liberals have not maligned uh, Plato. They have glorified him. And uh, any such writer who comes to the defense of Plato, well, he may be valid in what he has to say about communists or something else, basically is not on our side. He is a humanist. And his position is... Uh, one of degree in difference from uh, Marxism.
Yeah. Uh, I would like to comment on this ad in the morning's West magazine. It's a new game by Milton Bradley called ESP. Yeah, there is increasing emphasis on ESP, and we had uh, a couple of generations ago a great deal of emphasis on the Ouija board and similar things. This is dangerous. This is clearly dangerous. The Bible forbids any such activity, and involvement in such activity does produce some very startling and interesting results very often, but it also has a very disintegrating effect on the mind, so that no one who dabbles in this over a time does so without opening up his mind to uh, influences that I think are basically demonic. I think if they want to go this route, they can do it much faster and uh, much more cheaply by taking LSD. The end result is somewhat similar, yes. This whole religious aspect of the uh, LSD movement is simply their attempt to get around the law. In other words, by claiming to be a religious group, they are saying that uh, Congress can make no law 
with respect to LSD. Congress does have a law forbidding the manufacture and importation of LSD. This law, however, is virtually unenforceable for the simple reason that there is no way of detecting LSD readily. It's odorless, colorless, tasteless. Well, how are you going to detect it? How are you going to spot a shipment of it? And as a result, the law is almost unenforceable, but it is a roadblock. So to get around it, they simply have uh, gone on to this bit about being a religion. And Leary started that. But it's fraudulent, basically. Well, the Indians over on Nevis use the peyote, and it's, yes. uh, some, it's uh, I don't know what it seems to be, but it has similar effects. It's and, a uh, natural product. They've, uh, they've fought on the basis of this Yes, well, of course, it was the New Deal that made that valid as a religion. Before the New Deal, it was forbidden to the Indians. But the New Deal justified it and called it a religion, and this is... So uh, in the door. Basically, our problem today is a matter of law. Now, in one of my broadcasts several months ago, I dealt with justice and the common law. And I pointed out that under the common law, you had a, a broad principle, and then you applied this. Now, under statute law, you have to cover everything specifically and if it isn't very precisely covered, there is no crime. So this means that uh, there are many crimes committed that because of technicalities are not covered and nothing can be done. For example, the Black Panthers moved into the state capital. They were led by one Black Panther who was an official of the poverty program. They moved in there thoroughly trained according to the legal code as to what their rights were. So there was no ground in terms of which they could be arrested for coming into the Capitol and onto the floor with guns. Now, the only way they were arrested was on the streets of Sacramento after this episode because they violated a local ordinance. So the state is trying to pass a law now to prevent any further such incident. But they are dealing nowadays, you see, with lawyers who are trained to take advantage of this new and basically anti-Christian type of law, statute law, replacing the old Christian common law. So they started to frame uh, a law making it illegal for anyone to walk into the capital or any part of the castle with a load of guns, unless you were a law enforcement man. Then they found out it wouldn't uh, work, supposing they walked in with a gun in one hand and the ammunition in the other hand. They couldn't do a thing to them until they loaded the gun. And if they arrested them and the gun wasn't loaded, it would be a case of false arrest. So now they're trying to figure out how can we nail them if they have 
the unloaded gun in one hand and the ammunition in the other or the ammunition on their body. But again, there are legal tangles. You see, when you depart from the Christian common law and you get to this kind of statute law where you have to spell it out specifically, there are so many loopholes that you can reduce the crime to no crime at all. And you're helpless. Yes, but we have virtually destroyed our common law and it is not taught in the schools that Mr. Maxwell can tell you. Yes. abortion situation is a very, very significant one. One of the most significant things happening on the American scene today. Here, the enemy knows us better than we know ourselves. Because the first great victory of Christianity was in this area. When Christianity moved out into the Roman Empire, Abortion and child abandonment were no crime. So the common, that is, no crime or no sins. The state could say if there was a drop in the birth rate, it is illegal to have an abortion. Or the state had the right to require an abortion. In Plato's Republic, uh, Plato goes so far as to say that any unlicensed birth should be aborted and the parents severely punished. This sort of thing is again being proposed. The only right in the situation was that of the state and sometimes of the husband, but basically of the state. It was not a sin. It could be legal or illegal depending upon the will of the state. And the same was true of children. If you couldn't abort the child, you took and abandoned it. You took it along the river and threw it there. And this was routine. Now, the thing the Christians did immediately was to begin to pick up these children. And many of them came from the best families. After all, the welfare families weren't interested in getting rid of their babies. They were making a good living then as they are now out of welfare. And they reared these children as uh, Christians. One reason why they did it was because, of course, these children were also picked up by people who would rear them to be male and female prostitutes. So it was an urgent matter with these Christians who often uh, severely taxed their resources to get out there continually and pick up these children before these scavengers got to them. And then second, to make a stand against abortion as murder. And this was one of the earliest and most eloquent testimonies against the Roman Empire. Life is a gift of God and no man can take life, anyone else's or his life, apart from the will of God. And how do we know the will of God? God says only he can take life. And God provides that life can be taken according to his will through the state 
for specified crimes, for murder, for kidnapping, for rape, for several other things. <coughs> when the state takes life for these purposes, it is not the state but God. And if the state doesn't take the life, then we're not doing it now. We killed one and we're not killing the rest uh, there in San Quentin. Then the state is under judgment of God. The punishment that you withhold from someone else falls on you. Now, abortion, therefore, was the first great victory of the Christian faith. They hammered away at this. And they finally began to get this point through even to people who are unbelievers that this was a thoroughly contemptible thing. That even an unbeliever should be ashamed of. And they made it a fixed law in all of Christendom as soon as Christians came into power. No abortion. Now, what this means, of course, is that the Christian principle that life cannot be taken apart from the word of God is being overthrown. And the most fearful thing in this is not that the state is trying to do it. Because we know the state today, every state, is basically non-Christian or anti-Christian. But that the church is not as vocal as it should be. If this had been tried 40 years ago, every Protestant and the Catholic assemblyman would be told, don't you set foot in this church if you vote for such a bill. And nothing like that is being said today. There is no statement of absolute excommunication if they favor such a bill. And this bill is just opening the door to make the state again the absolute Lord of life. And if the state can say that an unborn child can be killed by its permission, it can say that anyone can be killed according to its wishes. Yes? But we have a problem. The real issue in getting it killed initially is not that it's more near giving the series of questions on it,
debate that Paul therapeutic and all kinds of names are given to us to hide it. The basic thing is to give the state control. One of the first things the Soviet Union did was to make abortion possible, to open the country wide open to abortion. And then, of course, when they had lowered the birth rate too dangerously, then they dropped it entirely and made it very difficult to get because now they wanted men for the factories and for the army. In other words, life uh, and death are completely a matter of state uh, will. And this is the purpose in all of this. There was just one other short thing that he mentioned, and I thought it was a very short thing. He said there were two doctors in arguing, one for it and one against it. One doctor said, uh, well, let's take the case, an emotional case, and he said, well, a woman who was feeble-minded, uh, and her first child was um, uh, tuberculous. Her second child was feeble-minded like herself, and her third child, I would say in such a case, take her off of welfare and you'll solve the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Ye